Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? Well, my favorite line is when Lieutenant Escobar asks Jake Giddis, how'd you get past the guard? And Jake Giddis, played by the great Jai Nicholson, says, well, to tell you the truth, I lied a little. Red Devil, what's your favorite line from Chinatown? But Miss Mulray, I goddamn near lost my nose, and I like it. I like breathing through it, and I still think you're hiding something. And my favorite scripted scene, cinematic clip, or movie moment, when our protagonist walks from the bridge to the dry rocky bank of the L.A. riverbed and participates in a brief, albeit crucial, dialogue with a nino on a horseback. What's your favorite scene from Chinatown? Ooh, that's really tough. I just, honestly, I like the whole investigative piece. If I had to pick one scene out of all of that, it is when Mulray is down at the oceanfront, Giddis follows him, and gets tired of waiting, obviously, it gets nighttime, and puts a pocket watch underneath his tire, so that way he can tell when Mulray left. Welcome, Cinematic Fanatics, to Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Kimohawk Sessions. You are my cinematic fanatic. I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile. For your secondary episode, I offer a congressionally selected film successfully admitted into the National Film Registry, as it proved culturally, historically, and or aesthetically significant, and norish, never boorish, auricular presentation of one of our most favorite, most frequently rewatched, most colorful characters embodied by our man, Jack Bucky Nicholson, working off a stellar screenplay and capturing old Los Angeles in a fresh, contemporary, gorgeous gloss. Chinatown, circa June 1974. In honor of this slick flick pick unveiling, I describe, through smooth detailing, this flick's slickness unfailing, noir prevailing, and rich dialogue regaling. This is a slick cinematic experience that touches a trio of genres. Noir, mystery, and drama. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously, in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. I have adored this film since the unique treat of my first viewing. Imagine, if you can, that bliss multiplied by a factor of two, the moment I realized that Red Devil expressed a reverence for this film, meeting, if not exceeding, even my own. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn, stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair. I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a slick fucking flick pick. Chinatown is the flick, so very slick. Hence, my F-Stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around, till falsetto prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action. Lens distraction and, with the right slick flick pick, grants satisfaction. I am your worthwhile cinephile. You are my cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative fucking clock while feasting our eyes on the slick flick pick prize. Enter with us. You cinematic fanatics. Into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. Your worthwhile cinephiles. Co-hosts Red Devil and Falsetto. I think my favorite line from Chinatown is Lieutenant Escobar asks Jake Giddies, how'd you get past the guard? Well, to tell you the truth, I lied a little. (laughs) That's my favorite line from our protagonist, Jake Giddies, because it sums up who he is as a person. Yeah. And he says it with a grin on his face while smoking a cigarette. And that is all you need to know about this private investigator. Now, Red Devil, what is your favorite line from Chinatown? That's a hard one to beat. That That's real great because, like you said, it just shows the attitude that Giddis has. It's so great. But I also like 
Miss Mulray is kind of giving him sass, Evelyn Mulray. He talks about how he almost lost his nose, but he likes it. He likes breathing through it. And I still think you're hiding something. So it's like he's he has, again, kind of that sass factor. But, well, I guess for a guy, you don't say sass. I don't know what word you would say. But that attitude of sarcasm. And yet he's also showing that he can see right through her bullshit. The line is delivered well because he has that big bandage on his nose. Yeah. And he just looks somewhat ridiculous. Anyone would be in that situation if their nose was sliced. Now we have a close contender, which is semi-lengthy dialogue, but it's between Jake Giddies and Evelyn Mulray. It's one of the only times you get a glimpse into the sordid backstory of the character Jake Giddies. So it's very telling. But it starts with Jake. It's between Jake and Evelyn. So I'll actually play Jake and you can play Evelyn, okay? Actually, this hasn't happened to me for a long time. When was the last time? Why? It's an innocent question. In Chinatown. What were you doing there? Working for the district attorney. Doing what? As little as possible. The district attorney gives his men advice like that? They do in Chinatown. <laughs> I mean, that's just... And, and we'll actually touch on that later. Now, my favorite scripted scene, cinematic clip, or movie moment is when our protagonist walks from the bridge to the dry, rocky bank of the L.A. riverbed and participates in a brief, albeit crucial, dialogue with a Nino on horseback. It's, Nino. It's the cinematography. It's the fact that the sun is still up. You're looking at this dry-ass, barren L.A. river basin. There's just a little bit of water. It's a short scene. It's with a character that you only see, well, one from a distance, but then two you see up close. You never see the boy again. But what's discussed between Jack Nicholson and this boy is pivotal to the entire plot. And I just like the way that it was shot. What about you? So for me, I would say it's not necessarily a scene, which is maybe a cop-out. But for me, just the whole investigative, like, noir, detective, looking through and, and, you know, leading his investigation. When, I guess, if I had to pick a scene, I really like almost that intro into his investigation where he's gone down to check on Moray kind of following him around town, trying to see what he's up to. And he is at the ocean, I believe, at this point. And he's just been there forever. I mean, he gets there during the day. And then he comes back up. It's nighttime. And Mulray's car is still there. So he goes to his car, gets a stopwatch, winds it up, or a pocket watch, I guess, winds it up, puts it underneath the tire. So that way he can go back and see what time Mulray actually left. I thought that was genius. So, in the actual script, the way that my scene is described is L.A. Riverbed, long shot, it's virtually empty, sun blazes off its ugly concrete banks, where the banks are earthen, they are parched and choked with weeds. After a moment, Mulray's car pulls into view on a flood control road, about 15 feet above the riverbed. Mulray gets out of the car, he looks around. And then Giddis is holding a pair of binoculars, as I like to say in the movie Snatch, downstream and just above the flood control road using some dried mustard weeks for cover. It's the parts of the movie Chinatown that I think are best when it's Jake alone doing his PI duties, where he's just out earning his money and he's walking around in a three-piece suit, sitting there in a fedora in probably 95-degree LA heat, and he is just a lone wolf scavenging for information. It's basically implied throughout the movie. It's set in this great book that we were able to extract a lot of research from. Jake Giddies is the ultimate snoop. Snooping is what he does best, and he cannot help himself. So even if he was, let's say, a volunteer fireman, I believe he would still be snooping, as it's in his nature to do so. This is going to be a collection of information gathered from both Wikipedia, IMBD, and some snippets from Roger Ebert's reviews. We're going to take turns reading, but this is just kind of lubrication to get to the climax of our own analysis of the movie as we watched it from opening scene to credits. We've seen it about Five or six times. Yeah, definitely. We've watched it with your mother. And I will tell you this right up front. Chinatown is absolutely amazing. As far as pure filmmaking craft, scripted, the story, the way everything comes together, it's immaculate. It also happens to fall in a category that I love the shit out of, which is noir, the time period taking place in the 30s, fedoras, well-dressed men, Sordid details, affairs, violence, menace. L.A. as the backdrop. L.A. as the, as the set and the landscape. 
the look of the film, like the way that they, the way that it's been remastered, if it's been remastered, the colors are exquisite and it looks great. It, it's like an old movie, but through the lens of a modern camera. And if that wasn't enough, like old LA noir, you've got Jack Nicholson in every scene of the movie. There's one moment in the movie where you're not seeing something from his perspective. And there's a brief exchange between Lou Escobar and Evelyn Mulray. And he's not present for that, but he's just outside the door. But it's his movie. I mean, he's carrying this movie along. So if the central character is weak, the film would be weak. But it's Jack fucking Nicholson. I think it's one of the best, juiciest roles for Jack Nicholson. I think it's definitely one of his best performances. But I think it's what happens when you have a union of really good material and a really good character coupled with a really good actor. Now, Jack Nicholson would go on to win the Golden Globe for Best Actor, and he did not win uh, the Academy Award. And Faye Dunaway was nominated for Golden Globe and nominated for Academy Award, but won neither. Obviously, I think his performance is better than hers. It's no fault to Faye Dunaway, but I've seen her in a couple of films, and I just do not care for her. She's not one of my favorite actresses. There are actresses that I do like, as you know, but I don't care for her. I don't like the way she looks, and I don't like the way she acts. Now, to be fair, in this role, she had quite a challenge ahead of her. She had to play a woman that was well put together on the surface, but she was like smoldering underneath. Extremely emotionally crippled, haunted by her very upside down, fucked up past. And she has to give these little ticks, these little clues all throughout the movie without spoiling it. So she had a, a hell of a tall order. While I'm not a big fan of Faye Dunaway's acting in this movie, or I don't like her as a, an actor, we are drinking lime. Tom Collins, not lemon, as the recipe usually calls for, in honor of Chinatown and Faye Dunaway's character, Evelyn Mulray. That was a cheers. Now, man, these are strong. Basically, if you make a Tom Collins, it's basically straight gin with a little bit of sugar water just to take the edge off. But it's gin, it's some um, simple syrup, and then you put in a cherry for garnish. I use cherry juice instead of Thank simple you. syrup. But we can have more. If you want more, we can have more. No problem. No fucking problem. Chinatown is a 1974 American neo-noir mystery. Now, Neo-Noir is important. We'll get to that. It's directed by Roman fucking Polanski. Now, say what you will about Roman Polanski. Is he a rapist? We don't know. It, has he been fleeing the American law and the judicial system for many, many years and hiding out in Europe? Yes, he has. But he has made some fine fucking films. And Chinatown is one of them. And for those of you that are big proponents of, oh, I like this movie, so let's watch another movie by the same director, The Ninth Gate. He directed The Ninth Gate. And The Ninth Gate is one of my absolute favorite movies. Red Devil also loves that movie. And we will be giving a slick flick pick on The Night Gate. We both agree that the ending is a little lacking. But maybe that's because we don't fully understand the ending. But that's not here. That's not the here and the now. The now is Chinatown. The Night Gate is just another example of a movie directed by Roman Polanski. But Red Devil has seen a movie that I have not seen that was also directed by Roman Polanski. Would you care to tell the audience and the cinematic fanatics about that? Oh, yeah, sure. Rosemary's Baby. Just saying, that was... Especially if you're trying to watch it... Through the lens of the time period it was created in, revolutionary. It's it's no surprise that it's, I guess you would call it a cult classic, but obviously a lot of people love that movie. For me, I don't really think I need to see it again just because it was really crazy and weird and creepy. But yeah, just thinking about it, I think that one came out in the 60s, I want to say. And been a teenager in the 60s watching that movie, I would never be able to sleep again in my whole entire life. It's basically like Psycho with a baby. And Satan. <laughs> I think Norman Bates was kind of like Satan incarnate. Sure. The film was based on a screenplay from Robert Town, who was a big name at the time. And Jack Nicholson and Faye Dunaway, I mean, they're two solid actors. This was a really pivotal role for Jack Nicholson because he had come off with some big victories like Five Easy Pieces and Easy Rider. But this solidified him in the annals of Hollywood because it was such an important role. And the film itself was inspired by the California Water Wars, which was a series of disputes over Southern California water at the beginning of the 20th century. And Robert Evans was the producer of this film, and it was released by Paramount Pictures. It was in 1991 when the film was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States National Film Registry, for reasons that I mentioned in the introduction. But if you think about the, the sheer plethora of films that have been made and that Americans have enjoyed, but were not worthy because they were not culturally, historically. Now, it says or aesthetically significant, but I would think it should be and or because some of these films are all of the above. 
An example of a movie that did make it would, would be like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Jaws. Like when you think of like and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, pretty sure. Yeah, well, like when you think of like traditional classics. Now, unfortunately, like John Wick and The Fog, John Carpenter's The Fog, <laughs> have not made it. But Halloween may very well be in that registry. Yeah, I could. See if you that. just think about the the sheer impact that it made on the country, sure. And when you think about a Halloween, you think, oh, that's an American movie. I say this with a, a whole swimming pool full of salt water, but it's frequently listed as one of the greatest films of all time. I say take that with a tide pool full of salt because it's like saying the greatest chicken fried steak in Texas, right? Everyone claims that, but I could easily see why it would be definitely considered. I would say it's like a top 10 noir movie, top 10 movie about Los Angeles, one of the greatest neo-noir psychological dramas ever. I could easily say all that. And it's always on the AFI best movies of all time list. It shifts around, you know, every so often, but it's always there. It was nominated for 11 fucking Oscars at the 47th Academy Awards. And Town won Best Original Screenplay. And that's fine by me. And the Golden Globe Awards honored it for Best Drama, Best Picture, Best Actor, as you know, Jack Nicholson, and Best Screenplay. And it was placed on the American Film Institute Top 10 Mystery Films, second in the Top 10 Mystery Films in 2008. So that means that not only was it considered a marvel at the time, but it stood the test of time. Because this movie came out in 1974, and here we are in 2008, and that is still getting quite a notoriety. Well, and it's very complex. I mean, this might not be the place to talk about it exactly, but every single time, I can honestly say every single time that I've watched Chinatown, I've picked up something new that maybe I didn't notice before or that I didn't know before because I was just too busy. It's, it's thick. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on a lot of nuances and if you're not paying full attention you'll still be able to enjoy the movie but you're gonna miss some of those great details i would say it's extremely layered and i would say that one of the closest comparisons i can think of is probably la confidential so many clues are are being held right under your nose but your olfactory senses are, are wanting and you just can't see it much like the main character we're looking at it like in retrospect and from like a 360 they're looking at it with blinders on because they're just trying to further the plot. So I don't blame the main characters for not figuring it out. But when Jack Nicholson is slapping the shit out of Faye Dunaway, <laughs> we feel his frustration. <laughs> and until she finally admits like the full truth when he backs off, he was extremely perplexed and frustrated with the situation because he thought he was having his chain yanked. Now, we won't talk about this much because it's, it's so disappointing. It's almost antithetical to what we're trying to achieve here with dual love of film, but there is a sequel with Jack Nicholson in the lead, and I believe it is directed by Jack Nicholson, called The Two Jakes, which came out in 1990. It's okay. It's maybe worth a viewing, but it's so disheartening when you think about... It's like it just shouldn't have been made. If The Two Jakes had come out maybe like in the late, like later, like in the like later 70s or early 80s, he still kind of looked the part. But he changed... Jack Nicholson's had a tough life, I think. I think he's lived a hard, coke-addled life or something. <laughs> but looking at him in The Two Jakes, 1990, which would be 16 years later, he's a different-looking man. It's okay, but it's nowhere near... It's like comparing Alien with Alien 3. Like, if you're an Alien fan, you should watch it, but I wouldn't recommend it just standing on its own. It's just disappointing. It's a real melodramatic, where the first one really isn't. Now, these are snippets from the Roger Ebert review. Now, Roger Ebert... I go to Roger Ebert religiously for really wanting to get an in-depth analysis of a film review. He gave Chinatown four fucking stars, which is the perfect score. And these are just some snippets from his review that I thought were very telling. The private eye is asked, are you alone in the film Chinatown? And his response is, isn't everybody? Well, that loneliness is central to a lot of noir heroes who plunder other people's secrets while running from their own. The tone was set by Dashiell Hammett, that's a cool name, and its greatest practitioner was Raymond Chandler. Now, to observe Humphrey Bogart in Hammett's The Maltese Falcon, side trivia, Maltese Falcon was directed by John Huston. John Huston plays the central villain in Chinatown. And Chandler's The Big Sleep from 1946. You see a fundamental type of movie character being born, a kind of man who occupies human tragedy for a living. I've always wanted to see The Big Sleep. That's on my list. Yeah, I think I've tried to watch it, can't get into it. But the Bogart character is never merely cold. His detachment masks romanticism, which is why he's able to idealize bad women. His characters have more education and sensitivity than they need for their line of work. 
He wrote the rules. Later actors were able to slip into the role of noir detective, like pulling on a comfortable sweater. But great actors don't follow rules. They illustrate them. Jack Nicholson, as J.J. Giddies, who is in every scene of Chinatown, takes the Bogart line and gentles it down. He plays a nice, sad man. I agree with this assessment. In one scene, he beats a man almost to death. But during his working day, he projects a courtly passivity. I'm in matrimonial work, he says, and adds, it's my métier. His métier, says Ebert. What's he doing with a word like that? And why does he answer the telephone so politely, instead of barking, giddies, into it? He can be raw. He can tell dirty jokes. Okay, he tells like one dirty joke. And, it's not and he makes the lady leave. He makes the lady leave, his secretary. But it's not even his joke. Like, he just heard it for the first time, so he's excited. He can accuse people of base motives. But all the time, there's a certain detached underlevel that makes his character sympathetic. Like all private eyes, he mud wrestles with pigs, but unlike most of them, he doesn't like it. The crime is eventually revealed as an attempt to buy up the San Fernando Valley cheaply by diverting water so that its orange growers go broke. And then this line is basically the best, or it's the closest you're going to get to a motivation for the arch villain. Either you bring the water to LA or you bring LA to the water. Now, John Alonzo's cinematography, which got one of the movie's 11 Oscar nominations, evokes the L.A. you can glimpse in the backgrounds of old movies, where the sun beats down on the streets that are too wide and buildings seem more defiant than proud. Notice the shot where the bright sun falls on the fedoras of Giddies and two cops, casting their eyes into shadows like black masks. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the thing I would add and that I noticed while I was watching, the palm trees are always in the backgrounds. The way that they capture the palm trees there, I, I think it's really neat. It just reminds you of the setting and, and where you are. Now, the villain we've alluded to, John Huston, who plays Noah Cross, which we'll get into quite a bit throughout this special, but he has a quote in the film, Of course I'm respectable. I'm old. Politicians, ugly buildings, and whores all get respectable if they last long enough. It's important to know the motivation behind what allowed this film to come into existence. So Townie wrote the screenplay. He talks of his eventual conflicts with Roman Polanski. They had a disagreement about some parts of the film, and especially the ending, as Town felt that the ending was ghoulishly bleak climax and conclusion. It's irrefutable that the wrong people are alive and dead at the end of the film. Yeah, bad guy wins. But remember that Roman Polanski made the movie just five years after his wife, Sharon Tate, one of the victims of the Manson gang was dismembered in her home. And so we can excuse, this is all according to Ebert, we can, all, we can excuse Roman Polanski for tilting towards despair. If the film had been made 10 years later, the studio, Paramount, might have insisted on an upbeat ending. But it was produced during that brief window when Robert Evans oversaw the series of Paramount's best films, including The Godfather. Now, audience, on a side note, if you really want to watch a great movie that is not true to history, Watch Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So effing good. I was shocked that Red Devil loved it to, <laughs> to the degree and extent in which he did because it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. So naturally, I saw that as an opening to show her all the Quentin Tarantino movies. And she's like, no, no, no. Pulp Fiction, <laughs> I'm indifferent, whatever. But she loved that movie. Well, obviously, you've got Leo and Brad Pitt playing off each other wonderfully. It really does show you Hollywood. It's like a period piece. But it's not true to reality. So it shows you in like a dream world how the attractive and lively Sharon Tate could have survived had it have gone this way. But in reality, she was brutally murdered by the Mansons. And hopefully we didn't spoil alert, but hey. Chinatown was seen as a neo-noir when it was first released, considered an update on an old genre. It's funny because it was made in 1974, but it was about like 1937, when I thought this was handled, of course, beautifully and articulately. Years have passed and film history blurs a little. And it seems to settle easily beside, now at this point, the original noirs. I don't know. It's hard to see like a black and white, like Maltese Falcon, and then watch Chinatown and really think they're in the same league. Because when you see it in such a rich, vibrant color, you just see that it's more modern. But like Road of Perdition, which is completely in color, also is from the 30s. So they get the costumes right, they get the feel right, but you can just see that they're clearly using technology that they didn't have at the time. Well, you know what? comes to mind when you're talking about that is the musical score. To me, yes, obviously I know it was filmed in the 70s, but with that creepy noir music, it is very reminiscent of those original noir movies. So 
I can see, you know, that side, but also to me, I, I would agree. It lines up with an older noir movie, which is very difficult to achieve. Can we talk about that? I mean, look at Black Dahlia. So there was the Black Dahlia that came out, I think it was in either the late 90s or the early 2000s, and it had Josh Hartnett, and it had... Or Hollywoodland? Is that what I'm thinking of? They both qualified. But it had Aaron Eckhart, and it had Josh Hartnett and Scarlett Johansson, and it was pretty terrible. Could have been great. So the Black Dahlia came out in 2006. It is considered a neo-noir crime thriller. I was disappointed because all the pieces were right. You had Brian De Palma, director. You had Josh Hartnett, Scarlett Johansson, Aaron Eckhart, Hilary Swank, and then a great-looking Mia Kirshner playing the Black Dahlia. She looked great, yes. And so the poster's great. The story's great. Now, Red Devil's actually read the Black Dahlia book, which is fantastic. I haven't read it yet. I started it, but it's difficult. I really love the material. But it's difficult for me to get into Elroy. Like, so yeah, his writing style is a little challenging. I agree. So I don't know how devoted you, but I mean, you're cinematic fanatic, so you're pretty fucking volatile. But I will tell you that if you're true audience fans of film like we are, there's a thing called the L.A. Quartet, which are four crime novels written by Elroy, James Elroy. In sequential order, it's The Black Dahlia, The Big Nowhere, L.A. Confidential, and White Jazz. I own this quartet of books. And I can tell you that LA Confidential is like a thousand pages. It's a huge book. But LA Confidential would then go on to be what I consider to be the greatest film of all time, which is LA Confidential. The Black Dahlia, it's like a five and a half out of ten. It's okay. There's some sequences in the Black Dahlia that are cool. It's like a cool looking film. There's a little bit of action. There's some very persnickety dialogue. It just fell flat. Yeah. And the critics hated it. Populace hated it. It just sucks. And I'm so bummed because I love the freaking Black Dahlia. But Hollywoodland was another huge disappointment. Also came out in 2006. How about that? But it's a movie where it's supposed to be about the death of George Reeves. George Reeves. Yep. Superman. Yep. The guy that played the original Superman, George Reeves, he died under suspicious circumstances in LA. And that's what the movie's about. And of course, it's got Ben Affleck, Adrian Brody, Diane Lane. So you got a solid cast, but it was terrible. I tried to watch it three separate times and I just couldn't do it. Like after 15 minutes, I'm like, this is dumb. And I was so pissed because I love. L.A. crime noir. I love it. Maybe eventually we'll get another noir. But but really, I mean, back to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, if you kind of like those noir type movies, absolutely, 1000%, that one we would recommend. So if you need to get that fixed, that would be a great one. Jerry Goldsmith was the composer for Chinatown. And what we've discovered is that there was mention of before Roman Polanski had his way the soundtrack was going to be terrible. I'm sorry, the score was going to be terrible. Jerry Goldsmith saved the score of this film. And the music, I would say, is about 35% of the overall aesthetic of the film. So good. If the music wasn't there, it would be a lackluster film in some ways. So his music, the piano, the lingering piano. The dissonance. Yeah, yeah, the chords as they strike for like moments of realization, moments when there's a plot twist looming. The music allows for the film to be choreographed before it's blatantly stated what's happening. Now, this is some information gathered from the World Wide Web, but neo-noir is a revival of film noir, a genre that had originally flourished during the post-World War II era in the United States from 1940 to 1960. Basically, we think between the Great Depression and World War II, and then for, say, about 10 years after World War II. Now, when you start getting into the Cold War, you're no longer in noir. You've, you've just stepped out of the noir box, and you've entered into like a triangle or something. There's a period, it seems to touch on World War II. I don't know why World War II is so important. I think the reason, the way I've seen it explained is like the disillusionment of worldly affairs in America. World War II was an eye-opening experience for the entire world. And like atrocities that were committed, innocents stolen, a lot of young soldiers that were having to be in the other side of the world facing monsters that were very human. I just think that that makes sense as to why World War II is such a catalyst for noir and such a central piece to it. The French term film noir translates literally to English as black film indicating sinister stories often presented in a shadowy cinematographic style. Neo-noir has a similar style, but with updated themes, content, style, and visual elements. I mean, when you say noir, bogey comes to mind. He was like the father of it. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. But he got there first. It could have been anyone. He is looking at you, kid. Right. That is from Casablanca. Now, typically American crime dramas or psychological thrillers, film noirs, had common themes and plot devices and many distinctive visual elements. Characters were often conflicted anti-heroes trapped in a difficult situation and making choices out of desperation or nihilistic moral systems. 
Now, this is where things get really spicy. I have found a shit ton of comparison between Chinatown and Constantine. One, Constantine is a one-word title that starts with the letter C. Same thing with Chinatown. Constant, <laughs> Constantine, three syllables. Chinatown, three syllables. I mean, you're right. But we're getting good. A lone anti-hero who learns crucial plot points as the plot unfolds before our, the audience's eyes, and his own. Also, he is a habitual fucking smoker. Boom. He is matched with a female counter to his lone investigative ways, and she is integral to the plot in both subtle and deliciously sinister ways. Identical. Yeah, we've definitely talked about this now that you're bringing this up. There is not as strong of a religious over or undertone, but there is reference to Oedipus and other classical characters, and there are moral lessons to be learned in Chinatown. There is violence in tandem with the recurring theme of implied violence, and there is an open-ended resolution where the immediate threat is thwarted and or the mystery is solved, but you leave with the intense impression that things are still unresolved for our central character, John Constantine, Jake Giddies. Jake, John. Their names both start with a J. They're four letters. Jake Giddies, like John Constantine, has an operative or two who assist him in his quest and at least one former close colleague, Papa Midnight and Lou Escobar for Jake Giddies, that have grown estranged from them and they have to work really hard to convince them to help them with this mission. The woman in both films is in peril at a climactic moment. I would say that Chinatown is like the predecessor to Constantine in a way. Pontius, I wish you could see his face right now. He is so pumped. They're chain fucking smokers. I also think it's funny because they both are dressed to the nine. They're both like anti-heroes. Like they do the right thing, but they don't want to. I mean, obviously I like Constantine more than Chinatown. Like, duh, that's why Constantine was first and Chinatown is second in our list of slick flick pick. But I just think that when I start thinking about it, I would say that both Chinatown and Constantine are neo-noir flicks. Yeah, I, I could agree with They're that. They're both investigators. And plus they have like the dame, you know, I mean, obviously you wouldn't think of Rachel Weiss's character as a dame, but it's always like a girl who's kind of getting that character. Well, that's, ex- to- that's exactly what she is. And she plays a critical part in the plot. The movie does not exist without Rachel Weiss. Yeah. This movie does not exist at all Cause without Evelyn Mulray. Right, exactly. I love Chinatown. It is on a short list of films similar in genre, costume, feel, and period. Chinatown caused me to recall the following similar, but sometimes inferior films. The Two Jakes, which we spoke on. Devil in a Blue Dress, which I will also mention later on. Road to Perdition. Public Enemies, Hoodlum, and the superior L.A. fucking Confidential. I love films like these. These pre-post-World War II pictures that show America, California, Los Angeles, in a pristine on the forest surface, obscene in the tree details sort of way. With a flawed but undeniably slick fucking central character, with a penchant for smoking and a knack for snooping, sleuthing, and seducing. Jack is the perfect personification of Jake. Some information will come from a novel, Chinatown, by Michael Eaton from the BFI Film Classics. We have read this cover to cover, and we have learned quite a bit about Chinatown. Now here's some trivia, which is from IMBD. Now after several takes that never looked quite right, Faye Dunaway got annoyed and told Jack Nicholson to actually slap her. He did and felt very guilty for it, despite it being Dunaway's decision. The shot made it into the movie. And it is very realistic, so obviously it's that not, makes sense. It's not pleasant <laughs> to watch. And what also comes to mind is the slap scene and LA Confidential, when Bud White, played by the great Russell Crowe, slaps around Kim Basinger when he feels betrayed by her. Now, he's not doing it to be malicious. He's doing it out of just pure hurt. So, you kind of touched on already, Jack Nicholson is present in every scene of the film, excluding one, it sounded like. I didn't pick up on that detail. There, yeah, there's just a brief exchange where Lou Escobar is inquiring for more information from Evelyn Mulray, and Jake is not in the scene. He's out in the hallway or something. He ends up kind of colliding into the scene. But he's not part of that exchange. Got it. So another interesting fact was apparently in the script, Giddis was supposed to have voice over narration, which also I would say that's definitely a noir characteristic. And when you think about like Danny DeVito's character in LA Confidential giving you that narration to kind of set the scene, you can tell stories in a lot of ways. Flashbacks is one way, but you got to be very careful how you use them or else they come off as cheap and forced. Narration is another way to allow you to get inside the character's mind. Now, if it's a perfectly made film, you don't have to have any narration at all. It should all be expressed on the character's face. But like with Shawshank Redemption, that's actually a gimmick that actually worked towards the film's favor. And I think that if you take out the narration from Shawshank Redemption, where Morgan Freeman's soothing, satisfying voice is helping you understand what's taking place like throughout the course of... Because a lot of time passes in that film. If you remove his 
voiceovers, the movie sucks as a result. But because of his narration, it's so exquisitely performed, it adds to it. But in this case, I think that we're in agreement that it's Yeah, a, it's good they it's nixed good. that. Yeah. yeah. This might be a good time. I don't know if you're planning to talk about this, but if you are, this would be a good time to kind of talk through the different ways that we find out information. We learned in the book that we just alluded to, Michael Eaton, BFI Film Classics, Chinatown, that an the example they gave is the film North by Northwest by Alfred Hitchcock. And there's three different situations that you as the audience can find yourself in, where you know the exact same amount of information as the main character does. You know just what they know, no more, no less. Now, you can assume things, but based on what's been presented to you as the audience member, you know just what the central character knows. The second option is you know less than the protagonist knows. And the third option is you know more. Now, North by Northwest is an interesting film because as the movie goes along, that flips and it flops based on kind of where you're at in the movie. That makes it interesting. But for Chinatown, it's one of those things where looking at what transpires and what unfolds through the eyes of the central character, we would know what he knew. Right. But the dramatic irony comes into play in little moments in the movie where we as the audience are exposed to something that he's not. So the best example is when Jake is at the Albacore Club eating fish with his head still on, talking to Noah Cross, and he starts pushing Noah Cross. Noah Cross walks into the foreground of the shot. Jake Giddies' back is to him, and he's kind of hurling accusations at Noah Cross. Well, we as the audience get to see Noah Cross's reaction, but Jake does not. Yeah. So there's a few moments where we're kind of clued in behind Jake's back, very literally. And when the real Mrs. Mulray is introduced to the film. Yeah, they talk about that in the book, too. It's like, it's one of the few times that Jake is so overtly blindsided, (laughs) and it it, it makes for a comedic moment. Yeah, for sure. So, speaking of the screenplay, apparently this is now regarded as being one of the most perfect screenplays ever written. And it's actually taught one of those main teaching points in screenwriting seminars and classes everywhere. It's a huge nod to Robert Town. Absolutely. And apparently he wrote this with Jack Nicholson in mind. So that's pretty interesting. I think that's always nice. And definitely, if you have worked with an actor before, or if you know how that actor shows up, you maybe are just a big fan. I mean, obviously, with all that information, this was certainly set up for success. Very cool trivia. I'm a trivia nerd. One of the things that we found on IMDb is that apparently LA's original Chinatown was demolished between 1933 and 1936 to make way for Union Station. The current Chinatown, it's located a few blocks away from that original. It did not open until 1938. So the only time LA had no official Chinatown was 1937 which is the year that this film was set. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, obviously, at the end, they show Chinatown, right? I mean, maybe it's it's not necessarily demolished, but like lights are out, stuff like that. I was trying to kind of pay attention to that. But just kind of an interesting thing, which by the way, if you are in LA, I think Chinatown is a really cool place to go check out just all the lights and the lanterns. Um, pretty neat. Another cool fact that we pulled from IMDb is that Cross, his mispronunciation of Gittis, he said he calls him Gits. Apparently, that wasn't in the script. John, I say Houston, but maybe it's Huston, couldn't get it right. So Roman Polanski just added a line in there for Jack Nicholson to correct him and just let it go. The rest of the movies, he calls them gits. Now, we actually can't get a consensus on that because IMBD claims that it was simply because he couldn't pronounce it properly. But then this book that we've alluded to went into detail suggesting that it was actually done intentionally because Noah Cross was attempting a power play where he intentionally would mispronounce his name, even though he'd been corrected, just because he could. To show the type of power and the political flex that he had. I could see that, certainly. So we don't know. It's, it's, I guess it's, you can kind of make of it what you want. Three lines are repeated twice at separate intervals. I think I would have remembered. It's an innocent question, and as little as possible. My daughter, my sister, is repeated several times at once. I was going to say, this last time watching Chinatown... The theme that kept jumping out at me, which to me is the whole theme of the movie, we learn like Chinatown, it's not, they reference Chinatown throughout the film. And it's not just referencing a place. It's almost kind of like a state of mind or a state of things. And really, it's kind of hard to pick up on, at least I thought it was. But in general, what I really took away from this last time of us watching it together, Falsetto, was 
there is several times when they're basically saying throughout the film, you don't know what's going on here. So whether they're actually saying that out loud or we're kind of inferring it from just, you know, being the audience watching what's going on, you don't have a realistic picture or the full picture of what's going on here. And that is really what, to me at least, the aura, what Chinatown means, what, what that weight is. Well, he's warned, Jake Giddies is warned both by Cross and by Mulray to just let things go or you don't understand how dangerous this other antagonist is. And he just never listens because, remember, he's a snoop master. He's a sleuth master. And for him, he's really just doing what he is, what he was probably put on the planet to do. And then he ends up being the one at the end of the film who tells Lou, you don't know what's going on here. So it's kind of like almost like a full circle. Well, and, and the only time he says that is when he's in Chinatown. So, I mean, there's about 40 parallels you can draw throughout the film where everything falls into place neatly and tidily. To be able to shoot this film and have it be over two hours long and have it make sense and have everything come together beautifully, I don't think I could have written a better screenplay. I mean, that, that much is obvious. We're going to do a lightning quick blow through of the actual plot of Chinatown. We're going to talk fast because you've already seen the movie and we've already gone over the nitty gritty. So this is just going to be kind of the fun observations along with our viewing of it. So we have Chinatown. Now it's a Paramount picture, which we talked about. Paramount itself, a little interesting tidbit here. From the book, BFI Film Classics Chinatown. Chinatown is the last, so it is often said, studio picture. A film which was made in a time when it was still possible for a Hollywood major to produce a complex work which, though it ultimately crashes against the rocks of despair, is never sucked into the maelstrom of cynicism. Paramount Studios itself, interesting history. The oil company was thinking of shutting down the Alien Mountain, where Paramount Studios existed, and selling off the real estate to the adjoining Hollywood Cemetery before Evans. Now, Evans wrote the screenplay, right? Robert Town. Okay. So, Evans was the producer, I believe. Mm, that makes sense. So, Robert Evans was the producer. There were some box office successes, though. Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski. Love Story and The Godfather, making it the number one studio in town, which may have just saved it. So, that's interesting. Also. Paramount could understand the script, maybe because its subtext concerned a theme too close to home, greed. Yup. I think the movie came out at the right time because if it had not been produced and executed when it was, I don't know that it would have come to pass. So it was a series of perfect storm events. The noir intro backdrop coupled with the trumpet is great, which again, the great score. We love the score. Can't get enough of it. We're introduced to the central character. He's in a nice office, private investigator style. The film quality, which we talked about, is excellent. Excellent color. Excellent clarity. What kind of a guy do you think I am? Jack Nicholson says very early on in the film, which is a good question. Because that's a question that we're going to be asking, and he's going to be asking himself. What kind of a guy is Jake Giddies? We know that he'll bend rules, but he has said, towards the end of the film, extortion is where he draws the fucking line. And so, he's proud of his work, because throughout the film... I make an honest living. Yeah, exactly. I make an honest living. That's a great scene, too. Now we enter fake Mulray wife wearing widow's weeds or fake Dunaway. Get it? <laughs> Instead of fake Dunaway. <laughs> fake, fake, good, fake. Good. Okay. You're always great. And here's something that's like the irony is, is so thick you could choke on it, but Jake Giddy says, let sleeping dogs lie. He should subscribe to his own fucking advice. Because if he let sleeping dogs lie at about three different times in this movie, things may not have led to bloodshed. You have a big frame picture of FDR at a like a council meeting for LA but talking about the water. I don't know what the significance of that is, but it's a big fat picture of FDR. Maybe just setting this, you know, where what time frame we're in. Now for those real good film buffs out there, speaker number one or council number one as he is credited, who speaks at this this town hall meeting, is Noble Willingham. He was in the original Walker Texas Ranger with Chuck Bucking Norris. They talk a lot about the Vanderlip disaster, which you can research privately. It was a dam that didn't hold. A lot of people dead. But it was mentioned, it's mentioned multiple times in the movie, and it's important. We get to one of my favorite scenes, which is showing the valley, which we've already talked about, ad, ad nauseum, ad infinitum. And here's where things are interesting, too, as far as irony. So, Jake Giddies has a secretary, and then he has two what he calls operatives. One of the operatives did not hear or overhear a conversation correctly. He comes back with his intelligence and says that the word apple core was used. Well, we find out this is not the case. So, one operative doesn't hear very well. The other operative, who's sent on a separate assignment, he completely misjudges the situation. He thinks that this quote-unquote chippy girl is a prostitute, or, or she's somehow having a liaison with this older man. But this is not the case. Yeah, and I love this, by the way, because this is how it would play out in reality. I mean, right, you know, now, these days, we have 
recording devices and, you know, all this stuff. But back in this time, it really would have just been boots on the ground, what you hear and trying to take away clues from those natural means of investigation. And then we're introduced to a scene where there's a car in the middle of a busy street and it's shooting steam out because it's overheated. Well, this is just kind of a, a gag because we're talking about a movie where water is so critical to the state of California. And here is a car that's just shooting steam out into the street gratuitously. The music throughout, I consider to be very similar to LA Confidential and the video game LA Noir. Now, for you, audience, and you, cinematic fanatics, if you love noir and you love solving little puzzles and mysteries, LA Noir is a great video game. I highly recommend it. Now, Jake pockets these business cards very slyly. And again, he is the master snoop. So if Jake Giddies had a superpower, it would be his snooping abilities. Yeah, he's in the water department at this point, I think. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not getting into all that. I'm just I'm just talking about things, observations that I made as, as we watch the movie in real time. Uh, there's a reference to Rum Runners, which I think is a cool reference. I mean, it, to me, I think of Prohibition. Here's what's funny. is You're about maybe 25 minutes in the movie, and there's a clue to this tide pool that's in the backyard of the mole rays. It's inside the tide pool. Jake notices it, but it's overlooked because he becomes distracted by Faye Dunaway. But he also, much like one of his operatives who heard Apple Corps, he does not hear the gardener correctly. And had he asked some follow-up questions to the gardener about bad for glass, bad for grass, maybe he would have fucking figured out the whole kit and caboodle. So he's snooping what he does best. Also, when they're talking about this lawsuit, because the real Evelyn Mulray is angry at Jake because he was hired by an imposter Mulray, he convinces her to drop the lawsuit. Well, this is moment one where Jake Gaddies could be out of this completely and nobody has to die. She, Evelyn Mulray, is ready to drop the whole thing, but Jake wants to proceed because his reputation is now in jeopardy. It's very personal, she says. Whoa, how personal he doesn't know, and we don't know quite yet, but after watching the movie multiple times, we know goddamn well just how personal this whole fiasco is for her. And then we have that line, to tell you the truth, I lied a little, at the dam, this is great. Also, we learn that along with the death of Mr. Mulray near the water reservoir, a local town drunk who likes to hang out in some of the reservoir tunnels drowns. This is weird as shit. And then we get the scene with a boy on a horse where he tells Jake Giddies that every night, a different part, water is released into the LA River Basin. The plot thickens. Also, when Jake passes his first no trespassing sign and goes to the water reservoir at night, we hear two gunshots. Pow, pow. Multiple times I watched this movie, and I always thought somebody saw him and they were taking a shot at him. No. They signal with two gunshots to signal the water flow. I never thought about that before. And when this happens, and then Jake is carried about 50 feet by this running water, which, by the way, Jack Nicholson actually did the stunt in real time. There were no oh, stunt doubles. Yes. Last scene filmed, right? Yeah. He loses a shoe. Now, this is a clue. Lost shoe is a clue. Because he lost a shoe during this event, and, and Mulray, who, is, who died under suspicious circumstances, he was missing a shoe. So what is it with water and missing shoes? We don't know yet. We get a nice cameo from none other than Roman Polanski, who plays what's called the midget, or the man with the knife, who stops Jake Giddies in his tracks with another henchman and says, hold it, kitty cat. Hold it, kitty cat. You're a very nosy fella. He's like, if you do this again, I'm going to cut your nose off and feed it to my goldfish, which is another water reference. Now, why are we drinking Tom Collins with Lime Not Lemon? Because that was the request of Faye Dunaway, and she is a snooty bitch in this film. Lime Not Lemon, she says. Well, she has an excuse. Now, also, he, having a conversation with her at this restaurant, he has a great line where he's like, the money's fine, but you shortchanged me on the story. I like that line. That's very Humphrey Bogart noir line, if you will. Definitely. He makes a comment to her about, like, win from a duck's ass. Makes me think about his character. He looks very mature and suave, but his dialogue is sometimes unsophisticated. Maybe he achieved this lingo over years of dealing with inveterate and vertebrate scum, like his clients. I wonder. You know, win from a duck's ass. I've never heard that before until this movie. Now there is some um, innuendo. There's the fear that maybe it will look like Jake was paid off after the death of Mr. Mulray by his wife to look the other way. So now he's very invested in figuring out the solution to these mysteries and these problems because his reputation is on the line. He asks her if she's been seeing anyone. Well, she suggests that she's been seeing someone, but we don't know this until later. She has been seeing her daughter, which will, of course, be a pivotal 
breakthrough in the film later. Then we get to, you know, one of Red Devil's favorite lines, which is one of our runner-ups, which is, I like my nose, I like it, I like breathing through it. Now, the woman that works at the water company, she seems to be absolutely fucking miserable. She just seems to hate her life. Yep. I mean, I would if I worked at the water company. Or really, if I was a receptionist, period. Now, we'll take a brief break to tell you that the name Chinatown is a great name. And there was a little bit of talk to it. So, you have Evans talking to town about the title. Like, okay, what's it called? Chinatown. Well, what's that got to do with it? You mean it's set in Chinatown? No. Chinatown is a state of mind, like you were saying, Red Devil. Jake Giddy's fucked up state of mind. I see, I said. Not seeing it at all. <laughs> and then later, it was called Chinatown despite its total absence of oriental location or characters. It simply couldn't have been filmed as it stood. Though buried somewhere in its 180 plus pages was a marvelous movie. Chinatown was a great title. But unless they said at least one scene in LA's real life Chinatown, they felt like they would be cheating, pulling in the public under false pretenses. And what a great decision to have the culmination of the film be in Chinatown, like selecting that. It worked out beautifully. Yeah. And it wasn't forced because Mulray's assistant, driver, butler, Khan lived in Chinatown, which was like their home away from home. So it all works out there too. Now there's a quote, and I, I can't place the, the name of the person who wrote the quote because it was in the notes of the book, but the quote is, if one stopped the flow of water here for three days, the jackals would reappear and the sand of the desert. I like that. And then while we were reading this book together, Red Devil thought that this particular point was very fascinating. Considering how many films have been made in Los Angeles, it is amazing how few of them have been about the history of this strange megalopolis on the furthest edge of Western expansion, hemmed in by the mountains, desert, and the Pacific Ocean. Chinatown is also unlike the majority of those films, which do have La La Land's past as some kind of a background in being concerned with neither the mythology of the movie business, nor with historic criminals from LAPD files. So that is very fascinating indeed. Now we learn that Noah Cross and Hollis Mulray, now Hollis Mulray is the husband of Deceased. Evelyn Mulray, own the water department together. We learn this through Jay Giddy's snooping. And we learn that they claim at the water department that they've been diverting water to the Northwest Valley and there is coincidentally runoff. Okay, no big deal. Jack Nicholson doesn't buy it, neither do we. Now, we learn what his fucking salary is because Evelyn Mulray hires him to, you know, investigate further what happened with my husband, Hollis. He says that he is paid a salary, his operatives are paid, he's paid expenses, and $5,000 bonus if he finds out what the fuck is what. That's absolutely nuts. Now we're introduced to the Albacore Club. So his operative that heard Applecore is full of shit. It's the Albacore Club, which deals with fish. Now, I noticed, after seeing the movie several times, that when Cross is sitting at the table with Jake Giddies, he appears to be using temporary bifocals. They're not on his head. They're off to the side. I didn't notice that. And, and yeah, and he uses them, like, occasionally. Speaking of, okay, we're going to talk about glasses now. So here's where I get confused. Okay, you, Red Devil, wear glasses. I do not. In the movie, there's a scene where, after getting slapped senseless, Faye Dunaway says, Hollis did not wear bifocals. But he was wearing glasses. Yeah, bifocals... What's the difference? The difference is, so you can have nearsightedness, you can have farsightedness, or you can have both, which is common in older people. And when you have both, you have to have bifocals. So your bottom lenses are going to be so you can see up close. That's called farsighted. And then your top lenses are going to be so you can see far away, which is that nearsightedness. How can you tell by looking at them if they're bifocals um, or glasses? These days, it's more challenging. Back in the day, you would be able to tell because the bottom is going to kind of give that effect of enlarging your eyeballs. So Hollis was wearing just regular glasses, not bifocals. Yep. But apparently um, Noah Cross, who's older, obviously older with a cane and everything, he has bifocals. But that will become important, you know, before we get to the end here. But along with everything else, so Noah's name is Noah, which obviously deals with water. Noah's art. So I think that's great. I also think it's, it's telling that his last name Cross is like double cross. Like his name being Cross, <laughs> like someone's going to be fucking double cross or he crosses people yes. or he has a cross personality. That's good, yeah. But he says, you are dealing with a disturbing woman, Jake. Evelyn Mulray is the daughter of Noah Cross. But he also raped her, and she had a daughter, which would be also her sister. And Noah Cross, when he says you're dealing with a disturbing woman, he's not wrong, but he is willfully omitting information. The cause of her disturbance. That's what I say. Right. 
Noah's ex- when we talk about this, but Noah's expression changes, but Jake cannot see it. But we can. That's dramatic irony. That's the definition of dramatic irony. And finally, instead of dealing with Jake, like trying to, you know, ruffles feathers, he just says, just find the girl. Now he offers to pay Jake a shit ton of money as well. So Jake, if he was completely unrighteous and immoral, he could be collecting a handsome payday at the end of this film. But he's not thinking about money. Plus, he's already well off. Great music again. It sounds like Spurs, kind of like the good, the bad, and the ugly, especially when, when he's like kind of out doing these solo investigations. When we get to the orange groves, it's another no trespassing sign. That's two no trespassing signs, and he didn't learn his lesson the first time well, around. Well, he's the P.I. When his nose got snippety-snipped. Second gunshot into the radiator, which leads to more steam, just like outside the barbershop. Again, it's showing water being wasted and how critical water is to the machinations of the plot. When Jack Nicholson is explaining the plot to Faye Dunaway, he's trying to light his cigarette in the car and it just won't light. And I wonder if that was like a, a subtle act of frustration. Like, we feel the frustration as he does. Like, we really just want to see the cigarette get lit, but it won't. Now, he answers some of her questions, which is in the initial dialogue when we talk about, you know, our favorite dialogue from the movie. He answers some of the questions about his time in Chinatown, but he does not answer the final question on why he left Chinatown. And this is important. It's history, what I call history reheating itself, because he claims that he hurt a woman in Chinatown accidentally because he tried to help her and ended up hurting her. Well, he's about to have history reheat itself. Now, her tone, Evelyn Mulray's tone changes as soon as he mentions her daughter, she is saying my father is extremely dangerous, which is a warning to Jake, a very blatant warning, but he is not listening. Jake has had difficulty listening throughout this film. His operatives can't hear correctly. He can't hear. Bad for grass. Bad for glass. So back to the bad for glass. He is told by the gardener that the water is bad for the grass. But in Paradine, the gardener's accent, very bad for the glass. Giddies is nearer to the truth than he can realize. He spots something in the pond, a clue which could lead to the solution of the entire mystery right now. Once again, the detective is seen without seeing. He doesn't get what is right in front of his eyes. This is awesome. And then, we go back to Jake the detective. He kicks off Evelyn Mulray's taillight bulb because she gets a phone call and he doesn't trust her. So he wants to follow her to see what the hell's going on. And this is similar to the beginning of the film where we get to Red Devil's favorite scene where he like puts the timepiece behind the tire. He's back in full-fledged detective mode now. Also, here towards the end of the movie, it's the first time we see Jake at his own pad. We don't get to see a lot of it, but we do get to see him be briefly comfortable until the fucking phone rings. Now, the phone rings a lot in the last 30 minutes of the movie. And I think that the phone ringing is something of a plot device. And it's alive and well in this film. Every phone call suddenly seems so important and drives the plot forward. This reminds me of the great neo-noir film, Devil in a Blue Dress, where Denzel Washington playing Easy Rollins is getting phone calls, like sitting around waiting for the phone to ring in some cases. And the plot can't move forward until he gets these pivotal phone calls. Now we're shown a very cool house that Red Devil and I think is just amazeballs, but it belongs to Ida Sessions, and she ultimately was the victim of what we call dying loose ends. She was a loose end and she needed to be killed for that curiosity to be satisfied. Mulray had salt water in his lungs, so salt water will be pivotal to the plot and the outcome of this film. And again, extortion is where Jake draws the fucking line. And then Jake makes kind of a flippant comment about how Lou Escobar has just made lieutenant and wants to hold on to his little gold bar. I believe in my heart of hearts that Lou Escobar has actually been pretty easygoing and, and helpful for Jake. There's been a lot of times where he could have just arrested him or he could have like really mucked his shit up, but he didn't. So I think that their old friendship, whatever they had when they were working Chinatown together, is being shown repeatedly throughout the course of this film. Now, Red Devil, do you agree that Lou Escobar has been pretty fucking nice to Jake and really kind of like giving him some latitude? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's clear that they have history together. We get that throughout the film. But I mean, especially at the end, he is giving him a big break. When we finally get the reveal on why Noah Cross, Sinister Incarnate, is being so evil, Jake says, you're already worth like over $10 million, which imagine how much that would be worth in 1937. But he's like, you already have all the things you could ever need. Creature comforts, money, wealth, power, prestige. What do you need? And he says, I'm buying the future. It's like he's trying to make a legacy for himself, which is super scary considering how fucked up he is. And when asked about, well, how could you have done this to your daughter? Like you've ruined two family members, basically. He says, I don't blame myself. So Cross, when called out on what's happened, like the incest and the rape and everything, he says, I don't blame myself for this. So he's either in like a deep denial or he just doesn't see it as evil. Now, the question that I have as we get towards the end of the film is, would Noah Cross have killed Jay Giddies? It's hard to say. I think the way I'm going to answer that is I think that Jake 
obviously felt threatened and thought that his life was threatened by Cross. But if he did what Cross wanted him to do, he trusted him enough to not kill him at that point. From Jake's perspective, I think he saw only an option to go along. You made a really great point, Falsetto, which is whether Jake goes along with his request to take him to Evelyn and his daughter slash granddaughter, Jake still knows what he knows. What would make Jake think that he wouldn't kill him even after the fact? I don't know. Well, we wonder if one, Noah even sees him as a threat, because what Evelyn will say shortly when they're in Chinatown is he owns the police. So if he owns the police, he owns the water commission, he owns the town, does he even really consider Jake a threat? Probably not. Also, remember, while Jake may not be perfect, and he's definitely an anti-hero of sorts, if he played his cards right, he probably could have been the chief private investigator for Noah Cross going forward. If he had just done his job, given Noah Cross the information on where his granddaughter slash daughter is, then he would have been able to probably work for him for years. But also, I mean, we kind of get a glimpse into Jake's mind of morality in a way, maybe a skewed way, but in a way, nonetheless, being important to him. Again, kind of going back to him defending his line of work. There's another telling line where you know all you need to know about Noah Cross, where basically Evelyn Mulray is trying to collect her daughter to get her out of town safe. And then a very calm, collected Noah Cross says, she's mine too, Evelyn. Like the way that you'd have a custody dispute between a wife and a husband when they're arguing over who has rights to the kid. It's just really creepy how so calm he is. So creepy and gross. And then she says he owns the police with conviction. It's probably true. Now Lou Escobar fires two rounds in the air, just like what set the water off the reservoir. I just thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah. Nice. I don't think he's connected, though. He's, Lou actually seems okay. Yeah, I don't think he's connected either, but... And her head falls on the horn at the very end of the film when she shot through the eye. But she had previously kind of dipped her head on the horn out of frustration when they were back at her house. And so that's two head-on-horn situations. And I'm wondering if that was like some sort of subtle foreshadowing. And then, of course, Jake is in a trance after she is shot and killed. As little as possible. As little as possible. And then Lou says, I'm doing you a favor, Jake. Like, get the fuck out of here. I agree with Lou. Like, he is doing Jake a favor. He had him in handcuffs. He had him arrested. And he's basically letting him go. Now, then Walsh, who's one of his operatives, gets the best line for being a small part of the bigger picture plot. So, Walsh, who you've only seen a couple times, and he doesn't talk much throughout the entire movie because he's just one of Jake Giddy's operatives. He's the guy that has the classic line. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. Now, some shout outs. So, one part that Red Devil really liked, you had Morty the Mortician. The aptly named Morgan attendant, a large, chain-smoking, jovial, and welcoming door opener, you only get to see him once, who looks and sounds like he came straight from Central Casting in the 40s. Middle of a drought, and the water commissioner drowns, only in L.A. And it is here that apparently, coincidentally, Jake finds out about a drunk who has been living in a storm drain of the dried-up river. He too has drowned. Very good stuff, with the even the small characters nail it. The bitch woman that works at the water department as a secretary, she's great. What about the old people at the old folks' home? That's great, too. Correct. You're a very rich woman. I still don't understand when Evelyn Mulray said towards the beginning of the film, when Jake is asking her about, like, liaisons that she's had, I don't see anyone for very long, Mr. Gitz. It's difficult for me. The only thing I can take away from that is she's been emotionally devastated because of her youthful trauma. Yeah. So she just can't ever really be in, like, a real full-fledged relationship again. Yeah, I agree. And then, of course, this book wraps it up beautifully where it says, in this scene between Jake and Evelyn Mulray, no lies are told, but no truths are revealed. I thought that was very well written. Do you have any other thoughts about Chinatown? Other than, if you haven't seen it, you need to go watch it. Just make sure you're in a mood to really pay attention. Maybe put your subtitles on if you're like me, and you need that extra layer of data. So this is the best way to take away Chinatown as a film. The complexity of the construction of this film, where every scene serves at least a double function, and every move matters within its own symbolic system and narrative world. That is how intricate this film is. The machinations and the motivations of Noah Cross, the killer, when he talks about how he wants to have more. That kind of wealth, that kind of greed, is almost an attempt to purchase your own immortality. That's the ultimate vanity and blasphemy about it. If you can control your future that much, then that means you'll never die. That's the unspoken thing here. Noah Cross is a great villain, and he would go on to be successful in his own right in Hollywood. 
And there is some symbolism here. The rape of the land, i.e. the water being diverted, the crops dying, is not simply mirrored by, it is overtaken by the rape of the daughter. So you have a movie that on the, from the outside looking in, you're not going to get that emotionally invested in it. Like you're thinking, oh, okay, water's being denied to certain areas of LA. You've got corruption at the core. Well, LA Confidential is about corruption as well. Corruption in every facet of society in LA. So they had to think of something that would bring it home, that everyone could identify with. And so they personalized it. So instead of talking about this big city that encompasses such a large square mileage and it has so many inhabitants, they decided to tell a very personal story about one woman and everything that she's been through. And that personalizes it. And in personalizing it, now you care more about the characters. LA Confidential did a similar thing, where you had three detectives, but you actually learn enough about the detectives and their backstory that you actually care about what befalls them. So it's brilliant. This noir flick was, in its illustration of a tarnished city of fallen angels, slick and an angelically devious, saltwater thirst-quenching, suspense-clenching, gut-wrenching, suspiciously fishy, albacore-clubbing, grubbing pick. We survived both the serving of fish, which still attached its head, and Faith survived Jack's slaps, turning her face bright, beet red. I remain always your fellow fiend for films. Your worthwhile cinephile, and you are my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least fucking edible. For our next Slick Flick pick, pick three. Slick Flick pick, priest on the stand, three stubs in hand. Sleepers, 1996. Now this will be a solo presentation, as Red Devil's going to take a little bit of a breather. And while she enjoys the the dramatic emphasis of Sleepers and the cast. Who doesn't like a movie that has Brad Pitt, Kevin Bacon, and Jason Patrick all in the same film? But it is a very disturbing film that deals with subject matter that no one would ever be in the mood for all of the time. But that in no way detracts from the quality of the film, so I will be presenting Sleepers to you, Cinematic Fanatics. Falsetto and Red Devil out. Out.